Welcome. This is Mad Hat Economics recording from the Cornell University. My name is Yu Dong. I'm a graduate student majoring in applied economics. Here is Elaine. Oh, hey. Today on our show, we invited our old friend, Professor David Just. Hello. And our new guest star, Dr. Ryan Nong. Hi. Thanks for having me on. Dr. Ryan Nong is a fellow in economic studies and policy director for the Hamilton Project. At Brookings Institution, his research interests include labor economics and public finance, with a particular focus on labor market institutions. Last episode, we talked about sweatshop jobs and labor market efficiency. Today, we will talk about American wages growth. We will focus on Dr. Ryan Nong's policy book on policies to get American workers a raise. So in the beginning, I want to ask questions to you guys. Are wages rising? Yeah, how how do you feel? Mine isn't at least not fast enough. <laughs> <laughs> so, Doctor Ryan, now, so could you introduce what is the wage stagnation and what's the definition for that? So, you know, we we think about a few different、uh, variables related to wages, but. But they all kind of tell a similar story that over the last several decades, particularly since around 1980,、uh, wages for the typical worker, usually thought of as the median worker, haven't gone up much. So over the the 1979 to 2017 period,、um, we have an increase in median wages of something like 14 percent, as measured in the current population survey. And so that's that's pretty small.、Uh, and you get a similar story when you look at The current employment statistics, and look at、uh, wages for production and non-supervisory workers,、uh, and, and so forth. And what's surprising about that is that productivity has gone up quite a bit over this period, and we are seeing this increasing divergence between productivity and wages. And so, what we do in this、uh, in this book, which I co-edited with the director of the Hamilton Project, Jay Shambaugh, what we do is we first start by just looking at what's happened with wages and how we might. Decompose the increasing gap between productivity and wages, and sort of see what seems to be accounting for this divergence between those two variables. Right, because it, it it seems sort of strange. You know, if you, you think about this like an economist, if and you've you've got competitive markets, as people become more product productive, they should become more valuable, right? Exactly. So you would expect, in general, that、uh, you know, as right as productivity is rising, as economic activity is increasing, that the demand for labor would go up as well, and that、um, workers' marginal revenue product would rise, and they would be paid more.、Um, and so, what we do through this book is think about both a variety of reasons why this might have happened over the last forty years, but then also think about some policy proposals that might help on different. Uh, different margins here. Yeah. So, w- what is the reasons, and what's your findings for the reason why the wages have been set stagnant for for、um, those twenty years?、Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's it's a obviously we think it's a difficult and an important question. There aren't going to be any really simple answers. The, I guess where where I like to start is just in thinking about this decomposition. The Economic Policy Institute and others have done some good work here, and we build on what they do. And and find something very similar, which is that much of what has happened is that 
inequality has increased amongst workers. So when you're looking at the typical worker, you're seeing stagnant wages. Um, but if you look at workers at the top end of the distribution, their wages have gone up considerably. So that's part of the story. That's a big part. Another part of the story is that the labor share has fallen. So workers are taking a smaller fraction of total national income uh, now than they used to. And then there are some other things that are happening, but over the last 40 years, they have a smaller role. Uh, a lot of times people ask about the increase in benefits that are paid that are not part of the wage. That's actually a fairly small piece of the, the story over this period. So that that's sort of the the scene setting that I would do to sort of think about what the the forces are that that are at work here. But then I think to to actually answer your question in a in a um, deeper way, you have to think about what kinds of things would affect both slowing productivity growth. You know, what would uh, would would lower productivity growth and thereby reduce wages? And then also, you know, what has changed the labor share? What's driving the the fraction of income that workers are getting? What's driving that down? And then you'd also want to think about what's changing wage inequality. So there are a whole host of, of mm -hmm. possibilities here. What we do in the uh, in the beginning of the book, and what some of the authors who who write for us in this book, what they what they talk about first are the sorts of developments that that we've seen in both the labor market and in the business sector that that affect what's called dynamism. So that's that's one big cluster of of issues that we think about, and we think these are important because they can affect both productivity growth and also the share of output that workers are getting, right, sort of separately from, from productivity growth. So when I talk about dynamism, I'm thinking about a few different things. Uh, the first is the declining rate of job mobility that we're seeing for workers, the declining rate of geographic mobility. You know, workers just aren't moving across states at nearly the rate that they used to. And then also the decline in startups. So entrepreneurship is 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 down. Uh, all of these, I think, are, are usually pretty surprising to most people, because mm -hmm. I think a lot of the the news would sort of give you the sense that, you know, the the pace of technological innovation is increasing, and mm -hmm. workers, especially young workers, are switching jobs all the time. But but actually, that's not the case. That that is surprising to me. So it, what uh, what would be behind people staying in one place uh, more than they were? before. Yeah, and, and that's where it gets difficult. So the research here, there's a lot of really interesting work that that has been done here and it's still ongoing. I don't think that the answers are, are fully there yet. There are some things that we know. So one of the big economic forces here is that places have actually become more similar in terms of their uh, mix of industries and occupations. So whereas okay. 50 years ago, if you wanted to be an auto mechanic or, you know, to work in the auto industry, you would really need to move to southeastern Michigan. Now the auto industry is much more spread out across the Midwest and the South, uh, in addition to, to Michigan. And that's true of, of many sectors. So there's, there's, there's something, there's less incentive to move across places. So that's that's sort of one answer. But then that's not all of it by any means. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't explain why job mobility has fallen. So, you know, in, in trying to think about that, there, there are a number of different things that, that seem like they could be at play here. One that, that I think about is occupational licensing. So mm -hmm. to the extent that, you know, you have to pay some pretty substantial upfront costs, whether in fees or in required training before you can practice in a profession, you, you often need to do that in every state where you would want to work. So that can that can act to uh, to reduce dynamism. Uh, another 
labor market institution that we think a lot about in this book is what's called the non-compete contract. This is something that I think many people think is a relatively small issue that would only apply to sort of high-paid CEOs and maybe some high-tech workers. But but actually, the very recent data suggests that this is it's it's quite a broad phenomenon. Many workers have signed contracts that basically limit their ability to take new employment after they leave their current employer. So, so if you've signed this non-compete contract, you might be prevented from working at a competitor of your company. And you know that could be defined very broadly. So famously, Jimmy John's had their uh, sandwich makers sign non-competes you know, across the company, across the whole country. And that would prevent those workers for a certain period of time from working for a competitor. And that was defined broadly and you know, acted to, to limit their job mobility. So there are institutions like this that we think are potentially limiting limiting job mobility. And then there's a whole host of other factors. It's such a big topic. I could, I could talk for some time, so please, please don't let me. Uh, but, but there's also a whole set of factors that, that affect entrepreneurship, right? And that, it, that have affected the rate of startups, which is also, you know, falling over time. I think uh, all the factors that you just mentioned, uh, 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 for example, the inequality um, or the labor share f- uh, f- fail- falling, it's more like the market level. So it's the overall picture that you get from a lot of the big data. So you know the trends, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but what about the if we're coming down to a company level? Like uh, I know that we're reaching we're reaching a full employment rate, which means we have a very competitive job market right now. So mm-hmm. companies need to hire people in order to further growth, uh, further grow their business. So it, it, to me, like this seems like a dilemma. Like if you want more people, then like if you don't raise um, uh, wages, then how, how they stay competitive in order to get talents? Yeah. I, I'm glad you mentioned uh, you mentioned that because that's another thing we think is really important and we focused on in the book, uh, labor market slack. And mm-hmm. so, yes, I, I think most people think that labor market slack is either gone or it's relatively low at the moment. And that, as you mentioned, you know, should encourage employers to raise wages as they try to um, to bid for, for workers' services. Mm-hmm. But we have a – there's a paper in, in our book by Jared Bernstein that mm-hmm. is all about over over the last – several decades, how infrequent it is that we actually get close to full employment. So if you calculate labor slack as the difference between the actual unemployment rate and what's called the natural rate of unemployment, the level that's consistent with full employment, he finds that we're actually, over the last few decades, we've only been at full employment about a third of the time. So it's quite frequent that you know, as over the last several years, until quite recently, there was a lot of labor market slack. The unemployment rate was quite high, and that can put downward pressure on on workers' wages. So that's yet you know another important factor here, that if you don't have sufficient labor demand for reasons that are usually you know national in scope, then you're going to see more limited wage growth. And this might be a something that I just heard from a friend, but but we have this weird assumption that we're thinking um, <clears throat> some of the uh, companies, they might consider, you know, if I give a raise to certain people, then it will prevent they hire more new people coming to the company and, uh, and they, they are afraid that they have to raise the overall wages for everyone. And mm-hmm. it's an anecdote. I, I don't know, but... <laughs> so- so you're worried that uh, you think 
wages aren't growing because they'd have to they'd have to pay their current employees yeah. higher and and not have I are, are I know inversions are common in academia I don't know about outside mm. <laughs> yeah I'm I, I know there is a there's a research literature on the relative um, business cycle volatility of the wages of new hires and then the wages of of current hires um, we did not look into that for this this project, but that's mm-hmm. certainly an interesting question. How do you think about the impacts from education? Yeah, because some some people in their state they will pay less than um, to get to the state university. Yeah, I I think education, which you know we haven't talked about yet, is is certainly a very important piece of all this. Um, there's a, a, a paper in our book by Fatih Guvenan that uses some really interesting longitudinal data from the Social Security Administration and finds that lifetime incomes have also been stagnant. They've actually fallen for um, for many men uh, who entered the labor force between uh, 1968 and 1983, and then they've been pretty stagnant thereafter. And what, what he finds is that it's the entry wages of, uh, you know, these workers coming in, coming out of education, whether it be high school or post-secondary, mm-hmm. getting their first jobs and really just not seeing any growth in that the wages on the first job that you know you would think would be increased by good human capital investments, that has not been occurring, even though their subsequent wage growth through their career has actually been has, – has not fallen and has continued to be pretty strong. We think that this suggests that it is really important to make good human capital investments and to you know to to make sure that workers are getting well matched with the right kinds of training so that uh, they can earn a relatively high and a growing wage right off the bat, and then hopefully that will you know sort of help them through the rest of their career. And this interacts with the point I made earlier about the declining mobility of workers because if you're not switching jobs very frequently anymore, it becomes even more important that that first job be at a relatively high income. It's interesting. And going back to your comments about non-compete clauses, which I, I didn't realize would be as prevalent as you suggest they are, I, that that non-compete clause could also prevent you from getting raises from having outside offers or outside opportunities, right? Exactly. So that's why I, I think non-competes are, mm. are a really important and understudied labor market institution because they matter for exactly that reason, that uh, the employer – gets this increased leverage over uh, over the worker once they have have signed that non-compete. And by the way, they often don't realize they've signed the non-compete until they try to leave and the employer says, well, hey, there was this paper that we slipped into your first day packet that you know signed you signed a dozen different papers and one of them is a non-compete. We, we have some information about about when uh, employees are asked to sign these these documents, and it often they're not told about it. You know, when they're given the job offer, they're often only told about it once they've come to work. And so, yes, so so they can reduce workers' ability to secure wage increases. Right, employers don't feel the need to to mm-hmm. to raise their wages, but they can also just the non-compete contracts can, in principle, can reduce productivity growth because workers aren't going to be able to flow to those best matches. <laughs> with other employers where they would be better suited and you know and in some cases we we have we have data about careers changing in big ways because you know you really don't like your employer you want to leave but the non-compete forces you to leave your industry or you know try to do something different that 
is that is a problem, right, for for both productivity growth and for for wages. Yeah, it just kills human capital, right? I mean, it, you have to mm -hmm. be retrained for an entirely new industry now. Exactly. So from the behavioral economics perspective, so Professor Davijast, do you think the wage transparency will boost the wages? Yeah, will increase the competition. Well, so there's there is some work out there that that looks at how people have very uh, have a lot of difficulty sort of navigating the market, and and mm. so. I, you know, traditional sort of economics, you think about search costs and, and figuring out what uh, what wages are, are possible and, and uh, what job characteristics are possible. But but beyond that, people don't operate in, in necessarily a rational way in trying to find that best wage. They, they tend to veer towards things that are a little bit more convenient uh, or, or e more easily understood or, or more familiar, which could also potentially play a role, I suspect. <laughs> yes. So, Doctor Nam. So, from the policy perspective, so do you think so? Yeah, I, I agree. I and I think we have pretty limited information about both wage transparency, um, you know, or or the lack of it, and sort of what effects it has in the labor market. But we do have some information, and one um, one figure that we have in this book that I that I found particularly interesting is a, a survey of workers that ask them, you know, how is wage and salary information available at your employer? So mm. they could answer that actually discussion was prohibited at their employer and it was potentially punishable in some way. Uh, they could say that discussion was discouraged. They could say it was permitted or that it actually was uh, data on wages was publicly available. And in the private sector, you see about a quarter of workers saying that it's actually prohibited or punishable in some way, and then more than 40% saying that it's discouraged. Mm -hmm. So there, there seem to be quite a few workers who are either subject to just to norms that you know they shouldn't be talking about their wages, uh, or they're actively being um, you know being sub subject to sanction from their employer if they do try to talk about the wages. And what I think is is problematic about this is that employers actually often have pretty good information about wages that are paid. So you get a situation where it's very asymmetric. The workers don't know. Uh, the employers are using these compensation surveys uh, where they, you know, they, they purchase information about how wages are paid throughout their industry. And then you have a situation where the employer just knows a lot more than the worker. And mm -hmm. I think this, this interacts with another important trend we haven't talked about, which is the decline in unions. So at one point, workers were represented by a union that would have uh, the ability to kind of access these same sorts of compensation surveys or to just have a, you know, a better informed view of what the, the market looks like. And now with the decline in private sector unions, it, it, workers are in a, a more asymmetric position, I think. There's a lot of uh, website, for example, the Glassdoor. All this like website, they, they sort of encourage people to, to, and they put their wages and then it's, do you think that's a way, like how people are um, sharing their, their, their wages and, and then trying to create this transparency? Yeah, I, I think that's a, you know, it's potentially a very useful resource. I think it's, it's great to the extent that it helps workers to, to know what other comparable workers are being paid. I think 
it seems to me that that data is pretty limited, that mm -hmm. um, it's not as high quality as the, the compensation surveys that employers are doing, which is, of course, why they're paying to have them done. And, you know, it's, it's, it, it can be unclear just how reliable that information is, or, you know, maybe it's not comprehensive. But certainly the fact that workers, you know, are, are accessing sites like Glassdoor suggests that there's a demand for this information. Yeah. Uh, and, and what our, our author in the book, Ben Harris, suggests is that there are a few things we could do to, to sort of put workers on a more level footing with employers when it comes to, to wage transparency. Maybe I'll just tell you about one of them real quick, if, if that's okay. Um, sure. There's actually, in the 90s, the DOJ and FTC created a, an antitrust safe harbor for firms to do these compensation surveys. So if you look at it from a certain angle, employers sharing information across them about workers' pay could look like a collusive activity that's prohibited by the antitrust statutes. And so what the federal government did is it said, you know, under certain conditions um, where there's uh, this sort of an arm's length relation or relationship between the the employer that's seeking this information and the company that's that's generating the survey and, and so forth you can do these these surveys and you're fine what ben harris our author suggests is that we should amend the safe harbor to require that employers share that information with workers so if they're going to do these compensation surveys yeah. and we're going to say that this is not collusion that's punishable um, in an antitrust way they need to let the workers know as well that this is the distribution of wages for this type of worker. That's an interesting proposal. I, I, it almost makes those studies a public good at that point. Is he proposing that be shared publicly or just with the workers of that particular firm? Just with the workers of that firm Okay, is, is the thought. Yeah, he's not proposing that you know all wages everywhere be fully transparent. That would be a much more radical step. Yeah. Uh, and I think he's just he's trying to find incremental ways to just improve the the symmetry of this of the information that exists between workers and employers. Yeah, because that, that would certainly I mean, just just giving it to the workers of that firm uh, certainly does a lot to, to sort of mitigate the, the market power you get from from that asymmetry. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's the thought that. I think it's a trade-off because I think the wage transparency and is like people sometimes want to and protect their privacy and they don't want to tell the truth. Yeah. I, I, so, I, yeah, I actually wonder, we, we mentioned Glassdoor. I, I really wonder if, uh, you know, you look on there and you don't get a very skewed idea of what wages are. Because mm. um, I, I, I would expect... People earning on the higher end are probably more willing to say something about it than those on the lower end, yeah. um, or, or you know, crow about it, if you will. <laughs> yeah. And, and right. if mm -hmm. if you're getting biased data, you know, if you if you go out there and you look and you say, oh, people doing what I do make a lot more than what I do, I I don't know what that does to the the labor market. If all the information you're getting is biased or bad, yeah, I think this is uh, an area of active research and it'll be really interesting to see you know what what kinds of information we we get i mean there have been on a kind of related uh, arm of the research is is focusing on these bans that states have some states have pursued on the ability of uh employers to ask about your prior wage history so this is it's a little different but i in my mind it's it's quite closely related and 
you know, there's there's some research that's that's being done now that evaluates those sorts of interventions. Um, and I do think we need more uh, funding for the Department of Labor and others to sort of examine and, and evaluate the impacts of, of these programs so that we have a kind of more fine-grained understanding of just how information in the labor market about wages is is mattering to workers. Yeah, I've got to say, just recently I had a, a company come to me asking for uh, you know a reference for somebody who had worked with, for me previously. And I've never seen this before, but they asked very detailed information about their wages <laughs> while they were working for me. And I, I, I was taken aback by that. I, I was pretty hesitant to give that information. Right. Yeah, anything to, to kind of get an advantage in these uh, wage negotiations, I think employers are going to, you know, to um, to try to pursue. Yeah. So for final question, I have a small question about the um, what? How do you think about the artificial intelligence? The impacts from artificial intelligence for the wages growth. Yeah. Oh wow, that's <laughs> that's out of left field. Yeah, yeah. That's a so, that's a tough question to. Um, <laughs> To answer in any kind of succinct way, I think. Um, I mean, I yeah. Unfortunately, I don't think I'll have a great one for you. I I think that it'll be it'll be fascinating to see what the the impact of that is on productivity growth. So I, I think the the thing that we haven't talked about is that productivity growth has slowed pretty substantially over the last dozen years or so. Um, and so a lot of the conversation that that we're having in the media is you know about AI and other things that you, know, you would expect to be producing this tremendous productivity growth, and we just haven't seen it in the numbers yet. So I'm a little skeptical about forecasts of, you know, what's coming, um, because I, I just I guess I'd like to see it start showing up in the productivity mm-hmm. numbers um, before I start to worry too much about sort of how it will affect outcomes for workers. Mm-hmm. So- so you don't think uh, AI is bringing the labor apocalypse yet? <laughs> yeah, I, I think, you know, possibly at some point. Um, but we we focused a, a little more on the things where we think there's a more solid, you know, mm-hmm. uh, evidentiary basis for kind of thinking about what's happened and what you could do to to help fix some of the problems. I think that feels like something that's a little farther on the horizon and, and you know, may or may not really occur. Yeah. And I think the final question just brings us to a nice ending point. Thank you, Dr. Nam, for sharing today. And thank you, Professor Just. And all right, folks, here comes to the end. We're so glad you're enjoying our podcast, Mad Hat Economics. Please share or contact us. You can always find more from our website or Twitter or just simply email us, madhatecon at gmail.com. We're looking forward to hearing from you. Have a good one. Bye. Bye.